Well, Arise, it is so good to be with you. My name is Grant Hickman. I'm a pastor. Uh, I'm actually an executive pastor over at Beaverton Christian Church. Uh, so just a little bit uh, away from here. I've been there for six years. My family is not originally from Oregon. Uh, don't hold that against us because we're not from California either. Uh, and so we're, we're some of the transplants from Texas that, that came out this way. Uh, I grew up born and raised in the panhandle of Texas. My wife is actually from Maui, Hawaii. Uh, and so we joke that by living in Oregon, we're just splitting the difference between our families uh, that are there. We fell in love uh, with the Pacific Northwest. Actually, as newlyweds, we were the only couple in the world that got married in Maui and honeymooned at Cannon Beach. And so uh, that's what we did 14 years ago, and we just fell in love. We fell in love, and so six years ago, God opened the door for us to be able to come uh, and be here, and just as being a pastor in the area, I've gotten to know Scotty uh, a little bit, and so it's, a, it's an honor of mine to get to jump in here and, and teach this morning, and so thanks for a, a great morning and the hospitality, uh, the, the time of, of prayer, and, and I always love it when the worship team kind of runs through because that's a time for me to just be in, in, in worship as well, and so uh, this morning we're going to be looking at, at one of the greatest uh, stories that you've probably, if you're familiar with the church or familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard it. It's in Luke chapter 10. Uh, it's the story of the Good Samaritan. But before we get to that, we actually have to spend some time in the Old Testament so that we can understand what's happening there. And it's one of the most, both of the passages we're going to look at are probably two of the most uh, popular stories that are out there. You could call them the greatest hits of sort. And so when I start thinking about greatest hits, my mind goes to a couple of places. And one of the first places that it goes is to sport. And last night, the Astros won the World Series. Uh, they beat the Phillies, and being a guy from Texas, I love that. And so now the debate is, like, are the Astros a dynasty team? And others out there are going, no, they're cheaters, and so they can't be a dynasty team. And so call it what you will. But, but we do this all the time with sport. Like, maybe you're a, a basketball fan. And so you debate who is the GOAT. Right? Maybe you recognize Wilt up there, right? Wilt Chamberlain. Maybe instead you're like, no, 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 it's, it's not him, it's Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time. He changed the game. Or maybe you're more uh, modern and you're like, no, it's LeBron James. And you're one of the people that has followed LeBron from team to team to team to team as he chases rings and championships. And so you're like, that's, that's the greatest of all time. I don't follow a lot of basketball, but I do enjoy football. And I think, okay, well, when it comes to the greatest quarterback of all time, who, who is it? Is it Johnny Unitas and the way that he changed the game and the things that he could do? Is it this guy in the middle, Joe Montana, right? Being a Cowboys fan, I refuse to ever admit that he was the greatest at anything. I, I grew up in the, like the 90s watching the Cowboys and the 49ers. And so I'm like, no, where's Tony Romo and Dak Prescott and Troy Aikman? Those are the three greatest of all time. Or maybe we all have to admit it's probably Tom Brady. As much as I don't want to admit it and as much I'm like, I, the guy's, the guy's stinking good. Maybe you, you're not into those, maybe you watch a real sport. Uh, maybe you're into pro wrestling, right? And so you're like, no, it's Ric Flair. Ric Flair is the greatest wrestler of all time because he just retired. I don't know if you know this or not. Um, also, you can tell by the three up there when I quit watching wrestling uh, and when I didn't keep up with them. He, he just quit. Maybe you're an undertaker. You're like, the undertaker is the greatest of all time. Or maybe it's the guy who sells beef jerky better than anybody. Macho man Randy Savage is the greatest of all time. When we think of the greatest, our mind goes all sorts of places. I was sharing this with um, my wife, and she was like, hey, that is all really much about you, but like, there's people that don't, aren't into any of those things, which then got me thinking, because my wife uh, is amazing. We have six kids, uh, 10 to 2. 
Uh, and so there's always like a good reaction to that. People are like, whoa, or they're like, God bless you. Or they're like, you know how that happens, right? I'm like, yes, I was there. And so like, well, as I was talking to my wife about this, I went, wait a minute, who, what about the greatest TV moms of all time? Like, I wonder if we were to put that list together. And so I um, Googled who are the greatest TV moms of all time. And I found that number three was, was this? yes, you okay. Yeah, 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 right? Right, of course. Lorelai Gilmore, right? From Gilmore Girls, single mom, trying to figure out how to fall in love in a town. Like, like if you're a single mom, you are immediately one of the greatest moms of all time. That is super, super hard to do. And so uh, it's an amazing thing. Or number two on the list was uh, Claire Huxtable. Claire Huxtable was number two on the list, right? And I, as I thought about that, I went, man, yeah, it makes sense. I grew up watching her. She was an amazing mom. And now we know that like she was putting up with all sorts of things with her husband that nobody knew about at the time. And so she definitely gets on the list. And then the number one, number one greatest TV mom of all time, you can probably guess it. Carol Brady. Carol Brady was the number one of all time, right? Which again, I think I hear that and I go, man, this totally makes sense. Like blended family, when you, when you have to through, you know, two marriages and kids and then you have a blended family and you bring that together, that is a whole nother kind of dynamic that she had to navigate. And she not only became the, the mom of all of those kids, but also of the hearts of American households during that time. We think about the greatest of all time. You can debate that. Maybe you're looking at that list like you're like, no, Lorelai should have been higher, right? Like you're like, how is she only number three? You, you can debate it all you want, but we all have lists of the greatest things in life, and we love to debate those things. What is the greatest state? Who is the greatest team? Who's the greatest TV mom? Who, who, I mean, we've got an election literally this week, and we're all going to be over this next week going, did our candidate win out on this? Did our measure, which we think is the right measure and the greatest measure, did that win out and did that play? We debate all of the time what is the greatest. The issue with our debates is when we're trying to debate something that's the greatest, we're the ones that set the criteria for what the greatest thing is. And we change our criteria. I know this to be true because I got in a conversation with a friend of mine one time about who was the greatest band of all time. And so we sat down to debate, okay, who is the greatest band, but we, that we wanted to be cordial about it. We then wanted, well, let's set some criteria. Let, let's kind of lay out the criteria of who it is. And so we kind of came up with some criteria. We said, well, uh, let's say that they have to have their original members. Like they, they, they couldn't have broken up at any time and they have to have always had their original members. And we said, okay, that's one. Let's say that, that they have to be multi-generational. They have to have spanned multiple generations. They couldn't be just like a flash in the pan, really quick, one-hit wonder band, like, like multiple generations. Let's say we, they need to have like adjusted their music over time and although maybe been in a genre, you know, shifted sort of the way they approach their music so that they can hit a swath of people. Let's, let's say they've got to be global. Like they can't just be one country that really liked them. They've got to be global and they need to do stuff beyond music. They need to be philanthropic and, and the money they've made, they need to help it be something that's gone on. So we started to kind of, we laid that criteria out and my friend looked at me and goes, oh, that's really, really simple. Based on that criteria, the greatest band of all time is Metallica. I was like, I'm sorry, I didn't know I needed to put a parameter on there that they made music that I could understand, right? And because I'm just, they were a Metallica fan, I was not. And so then I was like, wait, we, we forgot one piece of criteria for this. 
they also need to be from Dublin, Ireland. Because U2 is the greatest band of all time, and I don't even know why we're debating this. Like, they, they hit all of that criteria, and they are the greatest band of all time. You see, what I was doing there was, I had in my mind something that I already had a preconceived answer to. And so then as we debated it, I tried to skew and, and to manipulate the, the conversation and the criteria to where it would land where I would want it to land. And then when my friend threw out something that hit the criteria but didn't land where I wanted it, I found my loophole to go, oh, there's this other thing, though, that we need to do. And it's funny, and we can do that with, with bands, and we can do it with music, but it's another thing to do that with something that God calls the greatest. And in Scripture, we have the, the great commandment, we have the great commission, and we have the great collaboration that is the church. And so when God steps in and says, hey, this is the greatest. We need to pay attention to that. And there's something in scripture that has become known as the greatest commandment that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's called the Shema. And you're probably familiar with it, or, or maybe you are. The Shema is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is found in the book of Deuteronomy, which is known as a part of the Old Testament law, or maybe you're familiar with it being called the law of Moses. This is the rules and regulations by which Israel was going to live. You can kind of think of it like the legislative part of the scriptures, where they're laying out the laws. This is what the nation of Israel is supposed to follow and go after. And so every morning, uh, the Jewish individuals would wake up and they would say this. It sort of became their, their country's mantra of sorts. And the reason it's called the Shema is that very first word there, here. And so the, the, we later on in history added Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 5. The original readers and author didn't have that. They just called this section the Shema. And everybody around them would have understood what that meant. It's a little bit like us today that if I say, I pledge allegiance to the flag. You can, if you grew up in the United States, you can kind of begin to fill in everything that is there. We, the people, oh, that's the Constitution that is there. We, we do this in our culture. We have little phrases where we say something, and then the culturally, we know what comes after that, and all that that entails. That's Shema. Shema, the word here, there is the word Shema, and it carries with it more than just listening, however. It's listening and obeying. It's listening or it's hearing and putting it into action. It's what we would call in my household actually listening. I told you that I've got six kids, and, and I, I love them dearly. And so uh, I get to coach their, their baseball teams and their soccer teams. And we finished up our soccer season just yesterday. And so my second grade team, my, my daughter who's in second grade, I was coaching her team. Uh, their team name is the Speedy Glitter Girls. It's a great team name, by the way. Um, it's also what happens when second graders, half of them want to be the speedy girls and half of them want to be the glitter girls. And you're like, I've got an idea. Let's be the speedy glitter girls. And then everybody wins. And, and so we were, were the speedy glitter girls. They were great. Uh, they were so much fun. The, the girls have been together for three years. But in yesterday's game, in yesterday's game, it's the last game of the season. They figured it out. They know it. we're getting creamed by the other team. And we've taught our, our, the girls on the team like how to kind of stay in their lanes and be in the diamond and the triangle and all of that jazz. And they're getting the ball, and they're just immediately passing it to one another. 
And me and my, and my brother-in-law who were coaching the team were like, hey, dribble, dribble down the line, dribble down the line, then pass, dribble, then pass. And they just wouldn't do it. They kept getting the ball and just passing it and getting up, oh, turnover. They started passing it back. We don't have goalies. We have defenders. They started passing it backwards. And I'm like, what are you doing? No, down the field. We want to score. And I'm over here getting frustrated at second graders, which tells you the condition of my heart um, as well in, in all of that. But, but I'm going to end it. We like halftime hits and the girls all sit down on the bench. And I'm like, okay, ladies, do we know what dribbling is? But they're like, yeah, coach. And I'm like, okay, I want you to get the ball. And I want you to dribble. Stay in your lane and dribble. I want you to dribble it five times before you pass it. Can y'all do that? Yeah, coach, we got it. Half starts, they get the ball, and what do they do? They pass the ball. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. I think I'm glad this is the last game of the season. I don't think I could take this much more. Right? And, it's the, and I'm sitting there going, they repeated it back to me. They heard what I said. They said they understood. They probably memorized it in the original language. And yet... When it came time to do it, they weren't doing it. Oh, if that's frustrating for me, and, and I, this is just soccer. Imagine those moments then in Scripture where God's looking at Israel going, Israel, you're waking up every day and you're saying this. You're repeating it back to me. You know it. But I don't see you doing it. I don't see you putting it in to practice. So that's what Shema is. Uh, but then there's some stuff that it says about the Shema, right? It says that you are to love, that you're to love the Lord your God. Now with it, that carries all sorts of things when we talk about love, right? This is more than just emotion. It's not just how we feel. It's supposed to be this undercurrent of everything that we have. I can't help but think about the marriage to my wife. Her and I have arguments all the time. We had an argument yesterday during the soccer match and after the soccer match. <laughs> And then we had a couple over for dinner last night that we sat down with to help them in their marriage. And in the middle of it, my wife was like, hey, can I tell the story from this morning? And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't want to be exposed like that because I was the one in the wrong, right? But I was like, no, you, yes, share that story, right? Now, the reason why I can even tell you that today that my wife and I can laugh about it and go, yeah, we have arguments and we have fights is because there's an undercurrent of love in our relationship that does not rise and fall on how we feel about each other. It's a covenant commitment that we have made with one another. That I look at my wife and I'm like, listen, there are times that I love you and there are times that I don't love you and there are times that I like you and there are times that I don't like you. But yet in the midst of all that, it's the same words, but you and I both know there's an undercurrent here that's not going anywhere. It's why when I have to discipline my kids, I look at my kids and I'm like, hey, you know there's nothing that you can do to make daddy love you any more than I already love you. And you know there's nothing you can do that's going to make me love you less than I already love you. I just love you. And so I'm in relationship, and it's going, listen, hero Israel, love God that way. Not rising and falling on what he's doing for you or how you feel about him or how close or how far. It's like, no, no, I'm just committed to this. I'm just in this relationship. And when you love him that way, you're supposed to do it with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your strength. To do it with all of your heart means to love God with your everything. That you would love him with your whole mind, actually. We, we think of heart as the place of feelings, but to the um, original readers of this, the heart was the place of the thinking. We kind of have this in our culture where we say, hey, follow your heart. And that, what we really mean is like, hey, you've probably thought about it, but what's your heart telling you? And so uh, another way, one scholar that I read put it this way, they said it's as if the heart was the throne of the brain. 
And it was like that, that that's where it's sitting. And so it carries with it this entire idea of, of thinking about that the heart's desire would be around that. And then it says soul. This is not a piece of you, it's all of you. You see, we compartmentalize in our culture the, the way that we are and the way that we think this is a carryover from some Greco-Roman thinking. But for the Jewish mind, as they read this, they're like, no, 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 the soul is not compartmentalized from the body. It's all of who you are. And so if you're going to love God with your mind, but you're also going to love him with the deepest parts of your being, and then you're going to love God with your strength. Strength is the most complicated word to understand. It's this idea of loving God with muchness. And so what the author is trying to tell us in this Shema is devote every possibility, every opportunity, every capacity, current, future, and made up to loving God. So you should hear, O Israel, to love the Lord your God with your everything. All of you, every fiber of your being, from the way you think, to the way you feel, to the way you might feel, and the way you might think, to the depths of your soul, love God. And so Israel understood this. Israel had this. They would wake up every single day and recite it to each other. Which is then where we get to Luke. You see, in Luke chapter 10, there's this moment where Jesus is meeting with some people. And and there's people of all walks of life that are there. And and he's apparently giving some sort of a sermon. But then there's like a QA and a section at the end of it. And the people begin to ask Jesus questions. And this happens a lot. And here's what it says in Luke 10. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him a question. So this is an expert in religious law. You've got to remember, this is religious law, not government law. Although for the Israelite, they're a little bit of the same. So he's an expert in the Deuteronomic Mosaic law that we just unpacked and looked at in Deuteronomy 6. He's memorized not just that one Shema, he's memorized the entire Old Testament. If, if Deuteronomy is, is sort of the legislative side of things, this guy represents the judicial side of things. He's on the Supreme Court. Okay, He's a Supreme Court justice that is there to take the law, to interpret the law, and to help the people apply the law appropriately. And so he's an expert in this. He knows everything that is going on, and it's his job to interpret it. And Jesus has been teaching, and people are beginning to follow him. And he's going, I don't know that Jesus is leading them in the right way. And so he gets up as an expert in the law to ask Jesus a question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Pretty simple question. No, it's a pretty, that's a pretty big question. That's a huge question that he's asking. God, what do I have to do? And Jesus responds, what does the law of Moses say? Which, by the way, anytime somebody asks you a big question, be like Jesus. Don't answer it. Just ask them another question, right? Just, just ask them, and then you'll kind of find out, like, really what they're going to. This is classic rabbinical teacher model thing here. Any, any elementary school or junior high teachers in the room, you know. Like, this is the best thing to do. Jesus goes, well, what would you say? How do you read it? So notice what he does. Jesus goes, what does, you're the expert in the law. Everybody in the room knows this. What does Moses say? But it's not just what does he say. How do you read it? Give me the interpretation. He goes, you're you're the one that's supposed to have the answer on this, so I want to hear from you. And he quotes the Shema. 
Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, and all of your mind. Now, he adds the mind there. That's the nuance of of the word strength that we looked at briefly there and kind of how it encompasses everything and heart put together with that. It's also what happens when you take a Jewish writing and saying and you move it into Greek and Roman world. The Romans cared a lot about logic uh, that was there, whereas the the, the Jewish, they they weren't illogical people. They just didn't value it as much as the Greco-Romans did. And so by the time it gets to the Roman world, they're going, hey, we need to add mind in there because that's a part of your muchness and it was in the original. So that's why it gets expanded is love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, and your mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself, which is a summary of the entire Old Testament law. Love God and love people. And so this expert in the law gets up and he goes, how do I inherit eternal life? I do these two things. I love God. And as I'm loving God, I love people the way that God would have me love people. There's the answer. And Jesus' response is so, so good. Right. Do this and you will live. Next question. Right? Like that. He's like, I don't know why you're asking me. You answered it exactly how I would answer it. Good job. Good job. Next question. Anybody else? Let's, let's move to the next one, right? He immediately just goes, hey, do this and you're going to live. You're going to be fine. But this guy wouldn't let him off the hook. He's like, no, 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 no. There's an interpretation at stake here. We all agree in the words, love the Lord your God in all of these ways and love your neighbor as yourself. It's how we do that, the interpretation and the application. It's the hearing part. That you would hear it, you would listen and obey. It's putting it into action that he's going, I want to know about that. So the man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Hey, Jesus, I agree with you. I agree with you on what was said. It's the how that we do this. Now, what comes after this is usually what gets the play in this part of the story. If you're reading through Luke chapter 10, the next thing, that's what most uh, sermons that I've heard and that I've taught myself, and they get into the story where it's like the story of the Good Samaritan. Or there's a person that is walking down the road and they get robbed and then a religious person comes by and leaves them alone and then another religious person comes by and wants nothing to do with them and then a third person who is ethnically and culturally different for them that they were to be arch enemies in their culture. It's that third person that stops and helps them and goes above and beyond it all. And it's usually this great thing about, hey, so go out there and love your neighbor, those that are different than you and that think different politically than you and are a different race than you and a different ethnicity than you you go and love your culture well and that is a great sermon that we need but where God has really been wrestling with me is the motive of the question because I can hear the answer to go great go love my neighbor and I can begin to justify myself and go and I'm doing that so well I'm doing that well I coach my kids' soccer teams. I know the names of my neighbors. I know the names of my neighbor's kids. We babysit. We're involved in our community. I do that so well. I know the name of my local barista and my local bartender. Like, I I am in my community, and I love it, and these are my neighbors, and they're different than me, and they have different political beliefs than me, and they have different faith than I do, and I'm I'm good. I'm good. It doesn't get to the heart of the question, though. Justifying actions. See, the heart of this is that the man wants to justify 
his actions. Oh, the nerve to ask Jesus to just agree with me on what I'm already doing. To go, yeah, we, we agree with that. We're good. I'm going to go love God and love my neighbor. Hey, I'm going to change the criteria to present my interpretation of a text in a way that agrees with me already. You see, I think if I jump to the story in the parable that Jesus tells, I miss the motive behind the question. This religious expert sought to limit his responsibility for loving others. He knew the Shema, but how far does it really have to influence his life? He'd made up his mind and his heart of who he would and would not love, and he was using the Bible to justify his actions. He wanted the answer that he already agreed with. You see, when God started to point that out to me in the text, that's when all of a sudden it got real. Because I was like, oh, I do that. I do that all the time in my life. And in fact, it's hard for me not to. Maybe you've heard of the chatterbox mentality that we're all in these days. It's this idea of of the, the fact that because I consume specific news sources, that all those news sources already agree with where my politics are. And so therefore, they just reiterate what I already believe and make me feel like whether I'm in the majority or not, that everybody agrees with me. So then I come in contact with somebody who's listening to a different news station who's in their own chatterbox, and they believe differently than me. And I'm like, how can you do that? Like, like, are you... Do you even think about politics? And they're like, do I? Do you even think about politics? And now, instead of sitting down and going, hey, how do we talk about this? Or take the algorithms of Twitter and YouTube and TikTok and Facebook. I like the videos that I like on YouTube. I watch them because I like them. I follow people on Instagram that I like to follow and that I pay attention to. And then the algorithm goes, oh, this is the kind of thing that Grant likes to watch and that Grant likes to pay attention to. So we're going to feed him more of those things so that he'll stay on the app longer because we need to sell advertisement, I mean his data, um, to people. And so we need, like, like, they've got this algorithm to keep me on even more, which just gives me more of what I want. So now I live in a chatterbox of a world where all I'm hearing is that which I already agree with. And I like to justify my actions. And so then I come into this world where, because I already agree with it, I'm not really ready and willing to listen to other people. And I do this with the scriptures, where I believe and put into action parts of the Bible that I already agree with while ignoring the parts of scripture that I don't. And so I need to be able to do the hard look at my life that the religious expert in the law wasn't willing to do. In other words, as Eugene Peterson puts it for his congregation, looking for a loophole, he asked, just how would you define neighbor? I love that. Because when you think about justifying my actions, again, maybe I'll let myself off on the hook on that, but when you go looking for a loophole, I'm like, oh, I'm really good at finding loopholes. Like that, like, guys, I was in freshman physics, and we had to do a physics test. Uh, it was this project where we t- had to take a marble, and we had to, using physics alone, the marble had to move for one minute. And depending on how you could get it to move for one minute or not, depended on how good of a grade you got. And she docked us for every, like, 10 to 15 seconds, over or under a minute. We had to write up a paper on it. I hated physics. 
Mrs. Gwynn, she's a saint, an amazing teacher, but I hated physics. It was too much math and, and stuff for me. I, I wasn't going to do it. And then I woke, so I've totally forgot about the project. <clears throat> and I woke up the morning that the project was due. And I was like, oh, no. And the thing was, we, she was going to let us write the paper after we did the project. So everybody else brings their projects in that day. And they're like flatbed pickup trucks backing in. And they're doing it. And sure, their parents helped. And they're dropping marbles. And they have this whole contraption and everything else. I walked in with a giant stock pot from my mom's kitchen. And Miss Gwynn looked at me and she goes, where's your project? I was like, right here. And she was like, no, you know I start the timer after you let go of the marble. Once you're no longer touching the marble, that's when I start it. And I said, right. But there's a concept in physics called centrifugal force. And so what's going to happen is I'm going to put the marble in the bottom of this bucket and then I'm going to spin it really, really fast. And when I stop spinning, start the timer. And so I spun that thing fast. I got the marble to go all the way to the top of the stock pot, and then I froze. And it went for 58 seconds. <laughs> she still docked me and gave me a B, and I said, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much. I'll take it. I'll take it. Right. I, I woke up, and I was like, oh, no. I am not prepared for this. I didn't want to do it. How can I do it? And I found the loophole in the rules. And Ms. Gwynn couldn't do anything about it except change the rules for the next year, which I was also kind of proud about. Um, and so, so like, I, I, I hear Eugene Peterson say, looking for a loophole. He says, and who is my neighbor? And the spirit in me goes, hey, Mr. Loophole Guy, how are you doing in that? You see, so often I want to change the parameters of my opinion like I did with the band in order to agree with God in ways that I already agree with him rather than letting the spirit actually infiltrate me and go, hey, let's talk about this over here where you're not letting me in. And one of the things, guys, I've been a follower of Jesus for 30 years. And one of the things, the longer I follow Jesus and the more I do this pastor thing that I actually scares me on some level is that I become more and more like the religious expert in the law. I am much more understanding of the Pharisee than I was when I was younger in my faith. Because the longer I work with God, the more, or walk with God, the more I already have things that I know and that I believe and that I've studied and I've concluded on. That maybe God's asking me to revisit. Not because the truth changes, but because I need to grow in my understanding of who God is and how I'm to love God and love my neighbor. And so it's just made me begin to ask this question. Where are your loopholes? To just ask myself all the time, like, like, hey, Grant, where's your loophole in this? Where is it that you are justifying it? Where are you finding your loophole in who you will love and how you will love them? Where are you defining neighbor rather than letting God define neighbor? Who are the people that you're like, yeah, I'll love them and say yes to them, but not those people over there because I, I'm just uncomfortable with that. And the spirit goes, well, your discomfort is not something that I really care about. I've called you to go love people. So why don't you go sit down with them and care for them and love them and get to know them and their story and see them as a human being made in the image of God. Or that God would look at my finances and go, hey, 
Hey, how are you giving to the kingdom work that I am doing? Are you hoarding it all for yourself? And you justify it because kids' sports and piano and eating. We spent $500 at Costco yesterday for a week of groceries. I'm like, whoa, inflation is killing me. And I can begin to go, but God, I just, I've got to provide it. He's like, no, I want you to be wise, but also is that, are you using that as a loophole? How is it that you're loving your kids and loving your neighbor? And why do you do the things that you do? Grant, where are your loopholes? You see, we all have loopholes. We all have them. And so the que- it's not a question of judgment. It's a question of honesty. That I just want to honestly go, God, where are they in my life? And how are you pointing them out? And then I get to practice confession and repentance. I get to go, God, that is a loophole for me. I'm redefining things the way that I want them. And God, I want to define them your way. And I'm sorry. Which is all repentance really is. I simply like to define it. Is finally agreeing with God on something. Going, God, I agree with you. Now help me do that. And every time I've done that, there's no condemnation for those that are in Jesus. It's grace and love and mercy. And God just continues to look at me and go, hey, I know, we're good. I love you. Thanks for your honesty. Now we've got more to learn. We've got more to do. And then when I mess up again and I I do it again and I come back and I'm like, God, I'm so sorry I did it again. That thing that I was kind of justifying in my life, I've fallen into the same habitual trap and I'm doing it again. Will you forgive me this time? He's like, no, the cross wasn't big enough for that. No, of course there's no, he's like, of course, of course it's like, it's been dealt with. Jesus has died and risen. So you're good. Now keep pursuing after me. Keep chasing after me. Jesus is the one that has freed us from everything. It's why Jesus is going, hey, how do you interpret it? I want to hear from you because I'm in a relationship with you. And now that I hear your terms, would we walk together to go, ah, you're justifying your actions here. So arise, church, and hear. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And would you love your neighbor as yourself? No loopholes. Let's pray together. Father, I just, uh, I thank you for this great church. I thank you that it's filled with individuals that are collectively trying to pursue you. Spirit, would you just continue to point out in me and, and, and us, God, whether it's, whether it's through your spirit or it's through a spouse or it's through a friend or a community where I'm saying one thing and I'm doing something else. Or I'm justifying my actions. Or I'm living in a loophole. And God, I thank you for the grace when I finally see it that has been waiting for me to confess it. God, it is in your mighty and precious name 
that I thank you for these things and pray for these things. Amen.